Hello, and welcome to FRDH Podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. This will be a disjointed, free associative podcast. I'm sorry, but I hope with seeds of something to think about as we enter an unprecedented era. For that's what's happening. We are in a new world, one that America has not seen in my lifetime. Every big change in political direction in the U.S. is called a revolution. That's just hyperbole. Even Ronald Reagan, for all the ideological change in economic direction he brought to the office of president, was a recognizable politician. I began my career in journalism three weeks before Ronald Reagan was sworn in as president. I was the oldest copy aide in the style section of the Washington Post, answering phones, taking down copy, being a general dog's body. The paper itself was not immune to bigging up the change in Washington. A preview story was about the jostling for parking space for Reagan supporters' private jets at National Airport. Inauguration night, I was in the office as the formally dressed reporters flooded the city to record the end of the Puritan Carter years. The headline next day read, The Power and the Glory and the Parties. Report after report of restoration excess. This was not the Washington Post of Woodward and Bernstein and all the president's men. The permanent government in D.C. loved Ronald Reagan as much as it loathed Jimmy Carter. And my point is that while both were Washington outsiders, they had both served as governors, and Washington and the Washington Post could understand who they were. They had got to the presidency through normal politics. Their views were comprehensible. That's not the case with Donald Trump. When you enter a new historical era, before you can find the patterns and the through lines of thought, things just come at you. I know this because I lived through the autumn of 1973 when the Arab-Israeli war led to the oil price shock. A 400% increase in the price of oil imposed within the space of six weeks. It killed what was left of the post-war economic boom in America, and it would not become clear that those days were never coming back for some time. There are parts of the Rust Belt people still haven't stopped dreaming about the return to those days when people worked at secure, union-protected jobs and factories and earned enough to be middle class, which may explain the several hundred thousand Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Michigan votes that put Donald Trump in office. It was a decade, and deep into the Reagan era, before it became clear that 1973 meant the beginning of the age of reaction was underway. We're still in it. Reaction against the New Deal, the idea that government funded by taxes provided a strong safety net against the shocks inherent in America's economic system. When the purchasing power of wages decline and taxes go up, which is what was going on in 1973, something was going to give, and that was fidelity to the New Deal. Forty years precisely after Franklin Roosevelt took office, the era had come to an end with no replacement. I think that's where we are today. Almost 40 years after Ronald Reagan took office, his era has come to an end. Republicans won't admit it, but honestly, a president who dismisses NATO and is cozy with an ex-KGB thug is not the heir to Reagan, and it's not clear what the replacement is. Facebook today threw a memory at me. I had posted a photo taken in the late 60s at Bohemian Grove, the Davos before there was Davos for America's plutocrats. Every summer since the 1870s, 
the first Gilded Age, the all-male membership of this club get together in Northern California, Sonoma, I think, and act like fraternity boys. And they also talk more seriously about the state of the world while taking the measure of men they might need to do business with. Anyway, the photo showed Ronald Reagan and Richard Nixon looking up at a speaker attentively. I'd say from the lapels on the jackets, it would have been the early 60s. The two future presidents were there probably gauging and being gauged by potential financial supporters. The photo made me wonder if the plutocrats getting naked at Bohemian Grove in the summer of 1973, as Richard Nixon tottered and liberalism was rampant, if they had designed it, could today's reactionary America have been better for them? Unions shattered and wages suppressed, New Deal Wall Street regulations removed, blacks being made open targets by police, the universities no longer places of education and questioning, but billion-dollar businesses that charge 50, 60 grand a year in tuition, which students pay to get their tickets punched a Supreme Court in place that fillets campaign finance laws, allowing plutocrats to buy as much influence as they can afford, and a successful campaign to delegitimize news media and raise up a cross-platform right-wing propaganda machine, the equal of anything seen in the totalitarian states of the 1930s and 40s, so that public discourse in America oscillates between thuggish and stupid all aided and abetted by legacy liberalism's own innate stupidities. I don't think there is a cabal that manipulates the world behind the scenes. I don't. But if there was, the country that is about to inaugurate Donald Trump as president would have been the America they designed. And does anyone have any idea of what happens next? On the side of a recently demolished building in London, nothing is safe here from the real estate speculators, was a piece of art by the street artist Banksy. It depicted his alter ego, a city rat, looking up at a slogan. If graffiti changed anything, it would be illegal. Always made me smile when I went past. It was a witty echo of anarchist Emma Goldman. If voting changed anything, they would make it illegal. Contemplating the beginning of the new political era, with its concentration of power in a radical Republican party and an unprecedented chief executive who seems hell-bent on ignoring the wishes of the majority of the electorate who voted Democrat, what else might be illegal if it changed anything? Protest marching. I have been on enough protest marches and reported on others to say with some certainty they really don't change much. Marches are more rituals today than tools for political change. It wasn't always this way. There was a time in recent American history when marches were organized with the intention of changing things, and they were, if not illegal, challenged by the authorities, sometimes politely, sometimes with extreme violence, if they had a chance in hell of achieving their goals. It's hard to explain to those who weren't alive the intensity and excitement of the 1963 March on Washington. Reverend Martin Luther King's speech was the highlight of the day and has taken on a life of its own in the history of America. But the event, broadcast live as it happened, had images that knifed into viewers' preconceptions and began to shift them. Integrated crowds marching together, no violence, celebrities, integrated also, being interviewed. 
I watched and remember Marlon Brando showing a TV newsperson a cattle prod and explaining how it was used by law enforcement officers in the Deep South to police protests. Was Sidney Poitier standing next to him, or was it James Baldwin? Anyway, there are plenty of photos of the day floating around the Internet to jog your memory. Eighteen months later, images from another march, from Selma, Alabama, to the state capitol in Montgomery, came into living rooms. That march, actually a series of marches, genuinely challenged the entire social and political order of the Jim Crow South, and it was met with shocking violence and murder. The images galvanized public opinion and led to the passage of Lyndon Johnson's Voting Rights Act. The success of civil rights marches passed on to the anti-Vietnam War movement. Demonstrations and protest usually centered around marches. I marched. 1969, October, in the Bay Area, moratorium to end the war, a global protest to end the Vietnam War. Washington, May 1970, following the Kent State Massacre, the paradigm of how, if marching changed anything, they would make it illegal and shoot to kill to prove it. I even found myself leading a subgroup of marchers. The weather was Washington, D.C. hot, sultry, swampy. I ducked into the Smithsonian Institution's American History Museum to get some air conditioning. Came out on the Constitution Avenue exit just as a band of yippies were merrily marching towards the White House. They looked pretty stoned. I tagged along at the corner of 15th and Constitution, where they had to turn right to reach the executive mansion. They turned left. Not that way, yippies. This way, I shouted. Follow me. The column wheeled right with me in the lead, and we went along the eastern perimeter of the White House grounds. The entire place was encircled with District of Columbia buses with the air let out of the tires. They formed an effective barricade. Halfway up 15th Street, I happened to look up, and on the buildings across the street saw a range of armed cops drawing a bead on me. I slowed down and let the redirected wannabe revolutionaries march past. Eventually, assorted demonstrators ended up at Jackson Square. We pushed up as far as the bus cordon and sat down, until tear gas cleared us away. My unprovable theory of history is that that demonstration is the moment when something changed. People like us had been killed. The war carried on. Two years later, over Christmas, Hanoi was bombed. Had all the marching changed a damn thing? Marching stopped being about bringing pressure to achieve a goal. It became a way of telling government, hello, we're still here. I think that very phrase was used from the podium in May 1981, a few months after Ronald Reagan had taken office. A hundred thousand of us marched from the Lincoln Memorial over the Arlington Bridge to the Pentagon. At the Pentagon, instead of tear gas, we were confronted by a small group of clean-cut young Christians led by a handsome, well-dressed Korean from the Unification Church, the cult founded by Sun Myung Moon. The whole event had the feeling of being a ritual, the goals of the march, to protest against a smorgasbord of policies the still young Reagan administration was pursuing, and to demand action on those it was not, from the war in El Salvador, divesting American investment in South Africa, jobs, fairer economy, end to racism, support for gay rights. They were simply too broad. Marching lost meaning for me then, although clearly not for others. People march in Washington all the time, to no great purpose, beyond comradeship and a few seconds of coverage on television. 
People remember the phrase Million Man March on Washington. Does anyone remember what permanent change in society came out of it? There's a whole page in Wikipedia devoted to listing Washington marches, political causes from the left or right, male or female. They go on all the time. Some are serious, some are ridiculous. I mean, do you remember the Million Puppet March of 2012? It has a Wikipedia page to itself. Anyway, journalism is a great displacement activity. I don't believe marching does much, but others do, and as a reporter I have continued to march. In formation with the Shankill Road Orange Lodge on the 12th of July in Northern Ireland, with the Countryside Alliance as it demanded the right to hunt foxes, on a miserably cold and wet February day, I went out with anti-war protesters in Amman, Jordan, just before the Bush administration's invasion of Iraq in 2003. My translator assured me that half the 2,000 people on that march actually were Mukhabarat, Jordan's internal security police. That same day, more than a million and a half people took to the streets of London to protest the war. The war went ahead anyway. Today, marching seems to be a retroactivity, an act of political nostalgia more than a tactic in a wider strategic campaign to bring about specific social political change. I wonder what the future of political marching is in this new era. Clearly, it has become a fun day out and a chance to be among like-minded people who want to make their voices heard or show politicians I disagree. Yes, well... Thank you for sharing. But back in the civil rights era, when marching actually changed the world, those who participated had more on the line than a few blisters at the end of a long walk. If protest marching is ever going to be a useful political tactic again, those who put one foot in front of another are going to have to be willing to take a bit more risk. I wonder if the new era we are entering into will feature more than marches, wide-ranging acts of civil disobedience, with jail time a possible consequence of one's actions. Congressman John Lewis has achieved greater national prominence in the last few days than he has had for decades. Lewis, of course, was in the front row of the march from Selma to Montgomery, Alabama, that was confronted by extreme violence. He had his skull fractured by police. I won't march again until what's at stake on the march is something so specific and so important, the authorities want to make it illegal. Something like guaranteeing African Americans the right to vote. I won't put one foot in front of the other unless there is a real risk of having my skull fractured for supporting a very real and important and achievable goal, one that I know will make American society better. But I will, as a journalist, continue to go on marches so I can report them as rough drafts of history. And so I will be in Washington this weekend to march with a million women, a few hundred thousand women, however many women turn up. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. Apologies for rambling into my sound machine like Colonel Kurtz at the end of Apocalypse Now. As I said, I will be in Washington for the inauguration. I'm making a documentary for BBC Radio 4, but really, I will be trying to find the pattern in this new era of history, and I hope you will continue to listen to my first rough drafts of it. Please visit the website, www.goldfarbpod.com. There are many other pieces to listen to. And there's also a donation button. Please donate to keep these podcasts coming.